Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. everyone. Our Bible reading is from Jonah chapter 1 from verse 1 to 3a. At the end of the reading I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please let's all respond by saying thanks be to God. Jonah chapter 1 from verse 1 to 3a. The word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's go, let's go into a word of prayer to ask God to help us during this, um, uh, this, this sermon. All right. Lord, as we've um, sang, uh, we've asked you, uh, now we, Lord, beseech you, we ask that you Give us a word. Give us a word from you. We need to hear from you. And the only way we are going to hear from you, the only way we are going to see Jesus, is if the Holy Spirit is with us. And so, Holy Spirit, we want to listen to you. As you move in our midst here, as you move in the midst of those listening, we pray that you speak. Let us hear very clearly the word from the Lord for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Man, let me ask you a question. Are there people who particularly get under your skin? Are there people you know who particularly annoy you? Now, I don't know, any of you here, I know none of you think it's me, <laughs> particularly the staff. But if you think it's me and you're a staff member here, you can just raise up your hand. All right? And we are accepting applications as well. But... There are people that annoy us, get us under our skin, people that you've tried, but they just rob you of the wrong way. What do we do with them? What do you do with them? I'll tell you what we do. We push them aside. We avoid their calls. We block their numbers. In fact, there's a word for it. You know what it's called? We cancel them. Cancel. I don't know if you've heard this buzzing phrase, on social media nowadays, it's called cancel culture. Have you heard of that? Anybody has heard of what cancel culture is? Right? Okay, some of you are too old. That's your problem. Too old. Cancel culture. What's cancel culture? Cancel culture, really, is the practice of withdrawing support. The practice of withdrawing support from um, individuals, institutions, or ideas um, based on the fact that they've done something or they said something that you deem offensive. Right, so the comedian used to like before. All of a sudden, he made a crude joke about women, and then there's a whole. Can you imagine this person said this? Can you imagine this person said this? And there's a lot of pressure. So now his sponsors, they are they pressure the sponsors to stop sponsoring him. He loses that. They cancel uh, uh, the concerts that are coming up. He loses that. He's been what? Cancel. That means the way you're looking at me, it won't happen to you in Jesus' name. <laughs> All right, they will not cancel any of your comedy shows or anything. Right? We counsel them. 
You know, Akeli, you remember Akeli? Some of you remember Akeli, right? Akeli, right now, is cancelled, right? People, you can't listen to Akeli and you won't be thinking about something or somewhere recently, and they were playing Akeli songs in the 90s. And you know, oh, first of all, some of those songs are not, you should listen to them. But some of them were okay. I just felt a little bit guilty. Why? Because Akeli has been what? Cancelled. Who have you cancelled lately? I know some of you have, right? Yeah, you can think. My wife is laughing. Don't cancel me, babes. Please. Now, imagine you have cancelled someone, and then your boss or something tells you you have to go and do something good to that person. Or somebody, an authority figure says, you have to go and be nice to them. Or even worse, you have to go and preach to them. You see, whenever people think about the book of Jonah, let's be honest, one word comes to mind, or one phrase comes to mind. Big fish. Right, isn't it? You think about it. If you even look at our itself, it's still the fish. Jonah is the fish. But you see, and a lot of people, especially if you are in the West, a lot of people argue about whether that could happen or whether that couldn't happen and all of those things. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that many times we are focused on the wrong thing. And so that book doesn't speak to us. But the truth is, if we open our minds, if we remove the different things that are stumbling blocks to, um, uh, uh, to understanding this book, you will see that it is not just an ancient mythical book, but that it's such a very, it's a very relevant and contemporary book. It is going to speak to us. You see, Jonah was a passionate prophet, a passionate Israeli prophet, who God told to go and speak to some people that he counseled. And that same God that told Jonah to go is the same God that is telling you, is telling me, is telling all of us here to go and speak to some people that you have counseled. Some people that we will call unlikely people. Say, God, why would you get, tell me to go and speak to that unlikely person? You know why? Because God is not in the business of council culture. Particularly when it comes to saving people. You see, but God, those people do not reflect the kind of people that you say are good people in your word. And he says precisely, that is why my grace is outrageous. You see, if we are careful and we look deeply, you will find that the book of Jonah is not about a big fish, is not about Jonah, is not really about the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is about God, the kind of God he is, a God that is gracious, a God that is compassionate. And if we understand who that God is, then he starts to transform us into who we are meant to be. Amen? And so what I'm praying for, for all of us as we go through this series over the next couple of months, is that we will fervently, fervently become the kinds of people that God wants us to be. I hope that we will never see anyone as beyond God's grace. I hope that you will not see yourself as one who is beyond God's grace. Amen. And so that's what this series is going to be about. The outrageous grace of God for the unlikely. But today, we're going to start... And look at something that a lot of us think about, but we don't have the courage to voice out. 
sometimes we think God is wrong. You know when we say, God, why me? It was that. God is wrong. We think God is wrong even though we don't have the courage to voice it out. And so why do we think God is wrong? Well, that's why we titled the sermon, When I Think God is Wrong. And there are three things I want to see. I want us to see there why we think God is wrong. One is the reason. The second is the response. And then the third is the reality. The reason, the response, and the reality. So let's start. The reason. Now, the commandment that God gave to Jonah was very clear. Go to Nineveh and preach. Preach against the wicked Nineveh. He said, go to the great city, this verse 2, of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh. Where was Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the ancient nation or empire of Assyria. It was the capital of Assyria. Now, Jonah did not want to go there. He did not want to go there. He, like some of us, don't want to reach out to certain people. And you know why Jonah did not want to go, despite the fact that God told him to go? Because Jonah thought God was wrong. He thought God was wrong to send him to Nineveh. And what's the reason why he felt God was wrong? He had a practical reason. Jonah felt it will not work. That's the reason why. He felt it would not work. A practical reason. You know why he felt it would not work? Because these people were very wicked people. I don't know if you've known anything about the Assyrians. If you've heard about the ancient Assyrians, they were brutal people. Right here you see a picture of the Assyrians, one of the Assyrian soldiers, uh, some Assyrian soldiers. Do you know what they're telling that guy to do? They are forcing that guy to grind the bones of his family members. In fact, they were so brutal, I saw a quote by um, a guy called Tim Keller about the brutality of the Assyrians. Let's listen to four of them. It says, after capturing, the, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their two legs and one arm, leaving the other arm, just one arm. You know why they did that? So that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. Oh, another one. They forced family and friend, uh, family, uh, friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. Smile for the camera. They pulled out tongues of prisoners and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. These were people who used to burn adolescents. In case you are wondering who an adolescent is, that's somebody under the age of 18. Well, 12 to 18, I think. 12, 17, 16. Okay, 14 to? 24. Adolescent. <laughs> Uh, I disagree. Okay, I know that's, your, that's the work you work, but anyway, adolescents are not adults. All right? So you look at them, they were these, in fact, some people, they were basically branded a terrorist state. The, the, the empire itself was a terrorist state. So Jonah is like, <laughs> if I go there and preach, eh, you see, the real measure of success is not whether they are converted, it's whether I survive. Yeah. It would be like 
1969, in the heart of the war, a guy from Kano went to Enugu to go and preach to the Biafrans. Survival, not their conversion, will be the true measure of success. Jonah felt this will not work. And so some of us too think, maybe give you these two descriptions. There's somebody that you know. He's a serial womanizer. And God says, go. Go and preach to him. And he said, why would he, a serial womanizer, listen to a lackluster, Bible-carrying, church-attending, 34-year-old virgin like me? Oh, you say, why would she, a Lagosian born and bred, cosmopolitan, foreign-educated, boss lady, listen to an Akure, nurtured, low-level civil servant like me? Kemi, I didn't look at you. You saying, just like Jonah, really, not being insulted, rather than converting them, will be the true measure of success. Amen? Is what you'll be thinking. So you see, there was definitely some associated difficulty with it, no doubt. But the real reason Jonah did not go was deeper than that. And it's the reason why many of us don't go. Let me explain. I started supporting, well, my, my, my first acquaintance, Arsenal was the first English team I knew. And I, so I basically started supporting them about 30 years ago, 1990. But my real active support of Arsenal was from 96. So about 24 years. I love that team. And because I love that team, things are hard, but we won yesterday. The dead bones shall rise again. Amen? Now, but one of my favorite periods as an Arsenal supporter, I, have, I can't lie to you, one of my favorite periods as an Arsenal supporter was from a few years ago. You know why? Because Manchester United were suffering under David Moyes. They were suffering. At one point, they finished seventh, you know. Don't tell me that we finished eighth. I'm the one preaching, okay? They finished seventh. I was so happy because I hate Man United. Like, I hate them. And you, my United supporters, you disgust me. As I've said many times, how can you identify as a Christian with a team that says they are devils? And not just devils. At least if you're a green devil, it would be better. You are a red devil. Now, why is it that it was so sweet? That period was so sweet for me. Why was it? And I'll tell you why. Because some of you are saying, how can you be enjoying? You're a pastor. How can you be enjoying it when other people are suffering? It is because of what they did to us and because of what I know they will do to us when they rise again. Do you understand? It is what happened in the past and what I anticipate will happen in the future. They, they cheated us. We had an unbeaten run. We really dived. He dived. That's how we lost. But we're not even going to go into that one. That's, that's, that's another thing. It's a sore point for me. But there's bitterness there because of what they had done to us in the past. But I know also they will not spare us if they rise again. Amen. <laughs> but they will not rise again. Now, the same dynamic is at play here with Jonah. You see, I need to give you a bit of background of when Jonah was prophesying. You see, Jonah prophesied. We learn about this in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, or let's say 23, 25. 
Jonah, don't forget that um, when you read the Bible, you have all these historical books, but you have the prophetic books. The prophetic books aren't so much, they're not really historical. They're telling you about a prophet's life within a certain period in history. Are you following me? Follow me, right? A prophet's life within a certain, or a prophet's words and the things God told him within a certain period in history. Now, many times that history is given to us in the historical books of the Bible, and particularly when you get to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 3, um, <laughs> three Kings. <laughs> All right, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Okay, so Jonah was a prophet in the time of a guy called Jehoash, uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second, because there was Jeroboam the first. But Jeroboam the second was the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. All right? Jonah prophesied in that time. Jonah was one of the successors to Elisha. Elisha the prophet. Elisha the prophet prophesied in Jehoash's time. Jehoash was the father of Jeroboam. So, Jonah was one of the prophets that succeeded Elisha just as Jeroboam succeeded Jehoash. Okay? Now, in this period, Assyria were weak. Assyria were weak. But before then, Assyria had been strong. And when Assyria was strong, before Jonah's time, they had exacted economically impoverishing tributes from Israel. That is, they had forced uh, uh, the kings to be paying them money that they shouldn't have. And so that weakened Israel. So they hated them, even though they were weak now. Plus, years after Jonah passed, Years after Jonah passed, it was the Assyrian Empire that eventually sacked Samaria, that eventually conquered Israel and mixed certain people among them. Do you understand? So in other words, Jonah's hatred for them was what? It was based on what they had done before and what he was anticipating that they would do in the future. Jonah hated them. He was a proud nationalist. You see, why I'm saying that is because in Jonah's time, there were two other prophets that were, had succeeded Elisha, Elisha, right? Who are they? Hosea and Amos. If you open to Hosea chapter 1, uh, verse 1, what does it say? The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah. So these are kings of Judah. Remember, there were two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. King, reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the reign of who? Jeroboam, son of... Now go to Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa division, he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Israel was king of Judah. And who was the king of Israel? So three of them were prophets at the time. If you read the books of Hosea and the books of, of Amos, what you will find is that they were criticizing Israel. They criticized the king, they criticized the leaders, they criticized the people because of the idolatry and the injustices. That's when Amos said, let justice roll down like, uh, uh, like waters and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. Because in Israel, there was a lot of wickedness. And these two prophets spoke against that. And Jeroboam, though, for the wickedness to go, he was building them up economically. So, you know how sometimes you can have a dictator, but everybody loves the dictator. They look away from all the terrible things that the dictator is doing because he's making them prosper economically. This is what was happening. So when you read in 2 Kings, 
chapter 14, verse 23, 25. Let's go back there. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of the first Jeroboam, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit that idolatry. Now, he was an evil person, but he started to build. He had an expansive military campaign. It was a wicked, vicious military campaign, but it was going to bring favor to Israel. So he says, he was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Libo Hamath to the Dead Sea. And who was the one that was supporting him? Who was his prophet? According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Geth Hepha. Jonah, the most important thing to Jonah was his ethnicity, was his nationalism. He didn't care so much about the wickedness and the sin that was going on in his own people because he was a fierce nationalist, because he was a fierce um, ethnocentric person. Jonah, not only did he not care about what was happening with his people, he looked at other people and he he hated them. So when God said, go to Nineveh and go and preach to them, Jonah was like, who? You must be wrong. The reason was not because it was a practical problem. It was prejudicial hatred in his heart. And the reason why many of us do not go to certain people that we see are unlikely for God to save is because of prejudice in our hearts. We excuse it as practical reasons, or they will not listen or whatever, but the reason is there's something in our heart against those people. Maybe you have a problem with somebody, you have prejudice against people that dress immodestly. So rather than think about reaching out to them, look at them. Look at her. Or maybe you are the kind of person who thinks that people, those people, are compassionate social justice warriors like myself. Look at them. Hypocrites. So you never reach out to them. Maybe you think that those people are not as passionate about nation building. Just talking about Christians going to heaven. I can have nothing to do with those guys. Or maybe you think that those people are not particularly into high culture the way you are. You see, a lot of these prejudices is what stops us from going to read the people God has told us to read, and in our minds, what we are really saying is, God, you are wrong. Question, will you reconsider? Rather than looking at the people, will you look at your own heart? Amen? Rather than looking at the people, will you consider that the prejudice may be working in your own heart? Will you be courageous enough to confront yourself and say, you know what, God, it is that I really don't think I like those people. Let's be honest. Because if we don't do that, there's only one response. That takes me to my second point, the response. What do we do? Since we think God is wrong, what do we do? We run away. Jonah, verse 3, ran away from the Lord. We disobey God by running away from him. 
Now, this happens, the running away happens in two ways. And you can see those two ways, one here, but the other one is when you look at the totality of God, of Jonah's life. It says here that Jonah headed for where? Tarshish. The two ways that we run away from God is this. We head to Tarshish or we head to Nineveh. We head to Tarshish, that is, we are overtly against God, or we head to Nineveh, that is, we are overzealously for God. And I'll come back. Let's start with the first one, to Tarshish. Now, imagine um, you are a, a multinational business owner, right? I don't know what it is you are into, but you, 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 you have branches around the nation, the cities of the nation. Somebody, I said, imagine, some of you should be catching it. They didn't say amen. Okay. No, no, you will remain a local local operator. Don't worry. Don't worry. No problem. The word is coming out. And yeah. All right. Imagine you were. Imagine you were. Since you don't want it, imagine you are a national business owner. You have branches all around. But your head office is in Ibadan. All right? All right. I said imagine. Okay. Your head office is in Ibadan. So you now give an instruction to one of your people that I need you to go and do something for me. Go and deliver this thing in Lagos, all right? And then, he told him, go tomorrow. Then somebody sees him at the park and is entering a bus going to Medugri. Okay? Uh, that's not Lagos. <laughs> you will be particularly angry. I'll tell you why. If the person you saw was taking a bus, if they said he was taking a bus to Abel Kuta, what would you say? You see, Abel Kuta is not Lagos, but at least is in the same direction. Do you understand? The problem with Medugri is that it is you are meant to go from Ibadan south, and Medugri you are now going north, the other way. This is exactly what Jonah did. You see, Jonah was from Geth Hether. If he wants to go to Nineveh, look at the map. If he wants to go to Nineveh, right, he will go to the east. See where Gethafa is? Gethafa is there. He will go to the east. Where is Tarshish? Tarshish is in probably current what we call Spain. See where he's going. He's going somewhere. In the, he was meant to go to like Iraq, Iraqi side, Iran, Iraq side. Now he's going all the way to Spain from around Israel. Do you see the problem? It is not just that he disobeyed. He egregiously disobeyed. God said, literally, go east. Jonah was heading where? West. Far away. And there are some of us too like that. You cannot seem to want to... You see, Jonah did not want to obey the kind of God that will send him to Nineveh. Some of us don't want to obey a God that allowed your sister to be sexually abused as a kid. You can't seem to want to obey that God. Some of us think, why would I want to obey a God that made me to be born in Africa with all the kind of leaders, the either corrupt or inept or both together, that they keep impoverishing us? Why should I want to obey that kind of God? Look at my life. Suffer. As well as said, Suffer day for Africa, pa, 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 pa. and they say this God is all over. Why would I want to obey Him? So our reaction is not just that we disobey. Our reaction is that we head to 
Tarshish. That is, we are overtly against God. We look at the circumstances of our lives and we say, this God is not a God I want to obey. This God is not the kind of God I would want to like. But let me ask you this. Well, let me say this to you first. You decide to question God because your view about him is incomplete. You see, like Jonah, you've come to a place where you've decided that God is wrong because you can't seem to think of a good reason why God has allowed the world to be this way. You can't seem to think of a good reason why God has allowed your life to be this way. But you know, as you have grown, you know and you've seen how difficulty and hardship has produced the best in certain people that you know. Oh my God. You have changed your views about certain things as you have grown older because you have grown wiser. Isn't it? Well, you see, the difference with God is that he's the ancient of days. He does not grow old. God does not grow wise because he is the all-knowing God. You see, You cannot perceive why an all-powerful and all-good God will allow your life, will allow life to be this way because you have not thought that that all-good God and all-powerful God is an all-knowing God. And that is why we cancel him. Just because you cannot think of a good reason currently does not mean that it doesn't exist. Stop running from God. But then if we don't run to Tarshish, there's another way we can run to Nineveh. You see, the book of Jonah, again, if you are distracted by some of the other things people are distracted by, you won't see how beautiful this book is. The book is so well constructed. If you look at chapters 1 to 2 and chapters 3 to 4, they resemble each other, but the results are sort of different. You see, 1 parallels to 3 and 2 parallels to 4. So in 1, at the beginning, what happened, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And God said, go and pray to Nineveh, verse 1 and 2. If you go to chapter 3, you know what happened? The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh. But by the time you get to verse 3, it is different. In in chapter 1, he headed to Tarshish. In chapter 3 of verse 3, what what did he do? He says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to... Oh, finally, this is now progressing. He went there. So Jonah went, he preached, and when he preached, you know what happened? Go to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah obeyed. And when he obeyed God, what eventually happened? After the result came out, Jonah still thought that God was what? Wrong. He headed to Tarshish because he felt God was wrong. He headed to Nineveh also, still thinking God was wrong. The same result. Because Jonah is thinking, why should you spare these bloodthirsty people? He couldn't conceive of God's grace to them because they were wicked. They were unlike him. And so he felt he deserved the grace of God. They didn't. You see, the thing with Jonah here is that Jonah felt that by obeying God, and this is what happens to a lot of us, God now owed him. What did God owe him? God owed him to behave in the way Jonah thought God should behave. 
This is the mindset many people have. Many of us probably have that since I have behaved myself by keeping God's rules, God is obligated to answer my prayers and bless me. But this is what it shows. It shows that we are not really interested in God per se. We are, we are only interested in him being interested in our interest. Should I say that again? It shows when you have the mindset that God, I have kept this rule, I've kept this rule, I've kept this rule. It shows that it is not that we are interested in God per se. We are only interested in him being interested in our own interest. In other words, we have a God of our making. God made Adam and Eve in his image, but we like to make God in our own image. Because we choose what we want about God and we leave the things about God that we don't like. So you don't really have God. You have a God of your own making. This is legalism 101. Who is a legalist? When we say legalism in the Christian world, we often think about people that are so holy, people that are so righteous. They just, they, they, they just do too much. You know, they, they love God so much. That is not true. Let me give you an example of a legalist. Because legalists, as I said, they like to pick the things about God they want. They pick the things about God they want. They intensify it so that you think they're very pious. It's the same thing. Sometimes we read the Bible and we read the things we want. We intensify it and it makes us look like we are so holy. So I'll give you an example. There are certain kinds of Christians who say, you know, we are conservative Christians. We hold to the word of God. Have you not read Psalm 12 verse 6? They can quote it for you. They quote Psalm 19 for you. They quote Psalm 119. They quote 2 Timothy 3 about the word of God, about how it is able to reprove us, how it is able to correct us. They will tell you about Jeremiah. The word of God was in our bones. They say, as Christians, we must always keep the word of God. Let's keep all people's politics outside. Let's keep all this nonsense about the poor away. Let us just believe the gospel and that is okay and they quote Psalm 12 verse 6 for you what does he say? They say the words of the Lord are flawless like silver purified in a crucible like gold refined seven times what we need is the word of God that is all but when we start getting into things like talking about the poor and talking about how we should take care of them no what they need what the poor need is the word that is going to save them eternally. You say, well, that guy really loves the word of God. And then you point him to verse 5. That happens before verse 6. Because verse 6, verse 5 actually roots verse 6. What does it say? Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise. That is God speaking. Says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You see what a legalist does? He goes to verse 6, he removes verse 5, because he doesn't want to obey verse 5, he then takes verse 6 out of context, and he builds his castle around it. Is that you? Is you like Jonah? Are you taking the things about God that you want, and then you intensify it, make it seem as though you are very pious, but all in all, in this quote-unquote obedience, to God, you are still running away from God. And so maybe you are the kind of person who takes care of the poor. Maybe you are a social justice warrior. You are an activist because you say God tells us to do this. Have you not read Matthew 25? As you take care of these people, you are taking care of Jesus Christ, but you are very loose with your sexuality. 
What about that part? Or maybe you are the kind of person who is a philanthropist. You give to the poor. You give, so many people know you as very generous. And you do that because that is what the Bible, I'm just trying to do what God has told me to do. But you always keep church. Or maybe you are the kind of person, I pray all the time. I, am, I have taken a vow of the Nazarite. Alcohol, gouda, gouda. I won't even go. If there's a table that there's gouda on top of, I won't even touch it. Because my vow will have, I will not be consecrated again. You pray, night vigil. You're a teetotal, a prayer warrior. But man, when somebody annoys you like this, it will explode. Or are you the kind of person who, you know, me and God, we just, we just, I just, me and God, we have a, we have this wonderful relationship. I worship God. God and I, we have two hours every morning. Every morning, I worship God two hours. When it comes to regular giving to church, you and God are not that very close again. Do you see what is happening? You are running away from God. You are still a legalist. You have taken certain commandments of God, cherry-picked the ones you want, intensified them, and that makes you feel like everything is fine. And once you've done that, you look at God and you say, you ex I expect you to bless me. Why is this thing happening to me? We ask. What you are doing is that you are running away from God by running to Nineveh. Can I tell you, whether it is to Tarshish or whether it is to Nineveh, can you stop running away from God? Don't respond in that way because you see, many times, if you notice our running from God, the response of running from God is based upon a false premise regarding who God is, which leads to flawed reasons that we give for thinking that God is wrong. Run away from him because it's based on the false premise of who he is. And this then leads to a lot of flawed reasons as to why we think God is wrong. There are reasons are flawed. Your response is wrong. But if the reasons are flawed, we are not living in reality. To which you then ask me, what is reality? And that's the last point. You know the thing about reality, the thing about, I don't even think about this concept of motion. But motion now requires not just the speed and power but it requires direction for it to be right. You know, we are playing football now, since I used that before. The object of, of the game of football is to get the ball into the net, isn't it? Right? That's when you score a goal. So if you shoot the ball with power, it gains speed, and they're unable to stop it, it enters the net, we all celebrate, isn't it? Uh, what if it was in your own net? You know what I mean by your own net? That's called what we call an own goal. The, the speed was not the problem. The power was not the problem. What was the problem? The direction. If you were in a plane and the plane was rising up, taking up from the, uh, from the tarmac and it was rising up, speed and power are really important, isn't it? And you would love the fact that it has a lot of speed and power. Why? Because it's rising up. It's going this way. Its nose is in the air. Imagine if its nose was facing down. 
at that point, speed and power will be very destructive, isn't it? One kind of motion leads to destruction. The other kind of motion leads to salvation. And you see, motion is very important in this passage. God told Jonah what? Go. But there are two kinds of destructive motions in this passage. Have you noticed them? Have you noticed them? Look at the first one. The first one is, we've already, uh, uh, the first one we've already identified. Jonah did what? He ran away from God. Ran away from God. Motion and power, but what? Wrong direction. The second one says here that Nineveh's wickedness had what? Come to God. The problem was with the quality. The wickedness had come to God. Both of those motions were going to lead to what? Destruction. And let me tell you this. If you are in the wrong direction, your destruction is just because, just as somebody, you can't say that, oh, it was by mistake. I was thinking about something. My mom had annoyed me. My wife had annoyed me that day. That's why I mistakenly kicked the ball into my own goal. Please don't count the score. So many times, while we look at God and we say, what kind of God is this that, that punishes evil? It is not. It is that he has set things in place and we do deserve the, the, the destruction because we placed ourselves in it. Amen. But please, can I beg you, do not conclude that this is all there is about God because this is not the full picture. Just when you think God has been figured out, he continues to surprise us because he is a God of salvation. Because he is a God of motion. He is a, I was going to say, turn to your neighbor. We can't do that. All right. He is a God of salvation because he is a God of motion. Don't forget the big problem we have is that we are either running away from God or we are committing wicked acts that have come up to him. Then you say, oh, I know what to do to save myself. The way to save myself is now I should run towards God and try harder. But Jonah already did that in chapter 3 and we said, no, that is legalism. Or you say, okay, now let me hide my wicked actions away from God. Maybe like, really, the all-knowing God that sees everything? So the psalmist said that, where can I go from your presence? When you try to do that, it is self-salvation, and self-salvation is always, always leads to destruction. You know why? It assumes a false thing about God. It assumes that God is static, and it requires us to move to save ourselves. And this is what every other religion gives you, a static God. Who gives you instructions? You know, if you find yourself in a bit of a problem, if you find yourself in a bit of a small problem, you call your friend. Let's say what the problem is. Somebody hit your car. Somebody hit your car. I know this because somebody hit my car yesterday. <laughs> so hit my car yesterday. The driver took it out. Someone hit my car yesterday. The driver called us. And then I had to call a couple of friends because they said those people wanted to run away. So I called some people. Well, one of, okay, two of them were not... They are not built. But I called one of them that is quite built. Right? I said, please, four of us were going to that place and we went to sort it. No, we didn't do anything violent. I will need to let you know. It was all about intimidation. Do you understand? But you see, it was a small problem for me. I called friends. Do you understand? 
And sometimes when we call a friend in a small problem, what does the friend do? He gives us instruction. Instruction is helpful when you have a small problem. When you are in a mess, you don't just need your friend to give you instruction. You need your friend to get on motion. Do you understand me? You see, it was a small problem for me. For my driver, it was a big problem. Because the driver is probably thinking, oh my, if I let these people go, I may lose my job. The driver did not call a friend to give him instruction. The driver called his ogre to come and give him salvation. Do you understand? The driver needed his ogre to move. The driver did not need his ogre to instruct, his friend to instruct. When we are in deep mess, when, when, when the Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, if you have a God that gives you instruction, you remain in your trespasses and sins because self-salvation always leads to destruction. What we need is a God of motion. And in Christianity, you have exactly that. We don't have a God that is static. We don't have a God that is immobile. We have a God of salvation because he is a God of motion. Notice what he says in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that word of the Lord that came to Jonah was the word that was going to save Nineveh, but it was also the word that was going to save Jonah. When God's word comes to us, what does it do? It tells us the things God likes. It tells us what God doesn't like. It tells us the things he approves, the things he does not approve. In other words, God's word describes who God is. It describes his character. It describes his person. God's word describes him. God's word brings him. And so much so that not just the word in text, but God's word is himself. How does God save us? God ultimately saves us by coming in his word. The full expression of God's word is God himself. Do you think God can come and save you? You who think you're unlikely, do you think those people God has told you to go and preach to that they can never be saved? No, it's not you he's sending. He's sending you with his word. And what is his word? The word that fully expresses him. John chapter 1 says this to us. In the beginning was the word. The word described him, but the word was apart from him. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God apart from him, but the word was God. The word that fully described God. And in verse 14, it says, that word became flesh. That word left heaven. That word left heaven and came to us. And that word that became flesh, we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten, full of what? God's word is outrageous. It comes to the unlikely. Who is the unlikely? It is not just the Ninevites. It is not just Jonah. It is every one of us. God's outrageous grace is here for you. God's outrageous grace is here for me. Don't think that you need to do it yourself. God has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He left the place of heaven just to come down because you are that precious. 
You see, please don't do this. Don't cancel God. God is not in the business of cancel culture. Don't cancel him because you have a wrong view of him. Don't cancel anyone. Don't even cancel yourself. Don't cancel him. Run to him because now he has come to you. Jesus dying on the cross is precisely the way of salvation for the unlikely. It's way of salvation for the unlikely because it is the unlikely way of saving people by the unlikely grace of God. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.